0: It's a pleasure to be in front of you trying to communicate God's word. It's uh, just talking to Jonathan about, you know, I, I get to do this every once in a while, and every time I do it, it's such a, an amazing task, a hard task, uh, almost impossible, impossible task on my own, um, but really it's something that I enjoy to do, and so, so just delighted to have this opportunity to do it. And so we're continuing in Exodus. We are in Exodus 32. It is a, a chapter and there's lots to cover and I cannot possibly cover everything that happens in Exodus 32. If I told you everything that happens in Exodus 32, you would think that I was like talking about a Real Housewives season or something like that. It's just like thing after thing just happens and it's, it's um, Matt Munger's like, what in the world is Real Housewives? <laughs> and I appreciate that about you, Matt. <laughs> Uh, but uh, there, there is, I want to get to the heart of Exodus 32. I mean, I can't get 35 verses in, uh, you know, 30 minutes. And so I encourage you to go back and read it. If you have questions about what's going on on Exodus 32, as I did, as I read it, um, ask Doug, ask myself, ask somebody, um, try to work through the, the scripture together. I think that's a, a really good activity. Uh, I will read parts of it as we go, but first I just wanted to pray real quick and and let's get into it. Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for um, preserving it for us. Thank you for giving us um, the words of life. Um, there is a lot of sad things and, and, and sinful things, just plain wrong things in Exodus 32. It's, it, is, it is dark, but as we read the rest of your scripture, as we unfold the story, Uh, We know that ultimately it ends with you, Jesus, reigning over everything with no tears, no sin, no sorrow, no pain. And so Lord, help us to understand how we get there. Help us to understand where this fits in uh, to your story. God, I pray that you would allow me to just get out of the way and allow your scripture to speak. I pray that we would all be encouraged by the love of Jesus this morning, that we would all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Help us now, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we come to one of the most famous stories of the Bible, if you're familiar with, especially the Old Testament, we're coming to the golden calf. Uh, If you're anything like me, when you initially read these Old Testament stories of gross sin, and you stop and think, how? How, how could Israel go from being rescued in such a miraculous way to committing uh, a gross sin, of trying to somehow compare their God to something that they made with metals and iron, and that they would worship it? How does this possible? You stop, I, if you're like me, you stop and think how? How could Israel respond so foolishly? What's their problem? Like why can't they get it together? Uh, It's important to understand when we're studying the Old Testament and studying the Scripture a few ideas. The Old Testament and Exodus 32 can be best explained simply if you just keep reading. If you just keep reading. Just keep reading the text. Read all the way to the end in Revelation. The New Testament actually has a lot of things to say about this event in Israel's history. And we're going to unpack those things this morning. That's, a, that's a, key, a key thing to understand when we're reading Exodus 32 is this is part of the story, and it's best explained by, keep, by continually reading the story. The other key idea that you need to understand when we study Scripture is that the answer to the sin and sins of the people of the Old Testament is Jesus. The answer to this gross sin that Israel commits, the gross sin that we commit, is Jesus. The story is not resolved with simply don't be like Israel. That's not how this gets resolved. It's not simply, I can't simply get up here and give you a few steps or a few tips to avoid being like Israel so that you will not in your life make golden calves. That's not how this story is resolved. The story is resolved with Jesus. His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And my hope this morning, my prayer this morning as i work through this is that you will see that. You will see that if you wanna understand Exodus 32, you just gotta simply keep reading. You gotta see how this unfolds uh, throughout the scripture. And you have to see Jesus as the answer to the golden calf, to idolatry, to every aspect of what is wrong here in this passage. So I wanna do that. I I wanna achieve this goal by answering two questions this morning. The first, what was Israel's sin? And the second, what is God's response? If you would, Uh, You have a Bible in front of you. Again, I'm not going to read all of Exodus 32, but if you would, uh, open up to Exodus 32. Um, It is right at the beginning. There's some Bibles in front of you if you'd like. I'm just going to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 10 to help us understand what is Israel's sin. Starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So let's understand some context here. The context is simply this. Uh, We're almost done with the book of Exodus, but up until this point, uh, the people of Israel have been uh, rescued from their literal slavery in Egypt. Egypt. Right? There's, they were slaves of Egypt, and God has rescued them through plagues, through uh, great miracles, and he has defeated the, the greatest military army at that point. Uh, they go through the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts in miraculous ways, and they are now free from the land of Egypt. Okay? And, and then, in Exodus 24, God tells them, because I've done this, because I've redeemed you, here's how you have to live. Right? There are rules and regulations on how you are going to be my people. Um, I've done this so that you can live in a way that is pleasing to the way that they were created. They've just been rescued, and now uh, Moses, their unquestioned leader, right, the one who led them up out of Egypt, he is up in Mount Sinai with God, communing with him, receiving the, the Ten Commandments and the covenant for 40 days and 40 nights. Earlier in Exodus 24, when Moses relayed what is going to be expected of the people, the people said, we are going to do everything you just said. Literally, we're going to do it all. We're going to to obey it. We're going to meet with God, and we're going to obey everything that he has commanded us to do. And yet, Exodus 32 is roughly, possibly a couple of months later, and the people have rebelled against their God by making a golden calf and declaring the calf to be their God, to essentially saying, this thing that we have made is the one who rescued us up out of Egypt, who sent the plagues, who defeated Pharaoh, who parted the Red Sea, and who is the one who is now communing with us, directly talking to us, and who gave us Moses as our rescuer. They're saying, this golden calf is the one who did it. We know as people who've read this book, or if this is the first time you've read this story, that that's not, you know, that's not what happened. That is not the context. That's not exactly what happened. What has happened is that the people have committed idolatry. They have taken something, anything, and said, you are God, you are creator, you are sustainer, you are rescuer. And they've said, the God who is all those things is not. That's the, the simplest way I can explain idolatry. They've looked to something else and said, with all their hearts and all their passions, and said, You are my God. You are my Savior. You are my rescuer. You are the one who defines me, who I find all hope in. And the God who truly is the God of all those things is not. But there's a key thing I need you to understand that I need to understand as well. The main focus here. Okay, as we continue to read the scriptures, is not the golden calf. The main focus here is not the golden calf. If we continually reading the scripture, even though this is incredibly foolish and and it is grossly sinful to say that somehow your God is something you can make, that somehow the creator of all things, everything we see, is somehow we could create him and put him and say this is our God and worship him. That's not the main issue here. In fact, the New Testament describes exactly what's going on here. I did not know this before I started studying this passage, but in Acts seven, it's gonna be up here. In Acts seven, Stephen is giving a speech in verses 38 through 41, or 42. I'm just gonna quote his speech. He's talking about the people of Israel, and he gives great insight into what's actually happening here. He says in verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. They're talking about Moses. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. That's key. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up, from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 is really important to understand this. This golden calf issue, this gross sin, happened way before they ever fashioned it, way before they told Aaron what to do. It happened in their hearts, according to Acts 7. Before the foolishness of crafting a God made with hands, their hearts turned back to where they had come from, Egypt. This means that they looked to what they had in Egypt, and they wanted it again. No doubt they were afraid. No doubt. Let's, I mean, if we're going to give Israel credit, we have to say that, right? We have to say that their leader who, who, who fearlessly led them out from Egypt is, is up in Mount Sinai. It's been 40 days and 40 nights. That's kind of a long time, right? I have a, have a hard time imagining 40 days and 40 nights. No doubt that they were afraid. But the issue here, the idolatry here, the, the worship that happens here is that according to Stephen's sermon, and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, They looked to what they had in Egypt, and they wanted it again. Again, they were slaves. They were abused. They were outside of God's presence. They did not know God, and yet they loved it, and in their hearts, they desired it again. When God talks about your heart, he talks about all of your affections, all of your will, all of the the desires and passions that you have flow from the heart. That's what he's talking about, and so they wanted that again. No doubt they craved the comforts and predictability there i mean they were slaves maybe they enjoyed that for the sense that it was predictable and comfortable in one sense and no doubt turning in their hearts back to egypt relieved them from their current fear no doubt but as we'll discover later on that's not how we that's not how we roll with our emotions, our desires and our affections. That's not how we relieve our fears, our want for comfort, our want for predictability, and our want for peace. It's not how we do it. And yet the Israelites in their hearts said, that's what I want again. I want I want that comfortable aspect of my life. I want the fear to be relieved. I need it. I want it. Listen to how the rest of the New Testament describes What goes on in our hearts. Romans 1, verses 22 and 25. It says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is key. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than sorry the creature rather than the creator who is blessed and forever amen notice the emphasis paul in writing to the romans says it was he gave them up to the lusts of their hearts israel in their hearts caused the golden calf because they had to have it they had to have that comfort again. They had to have their fears relieved. They simply could not trust God that even though he had provided for them up until this point, he couldn't come through in this point. It was just too much. Listen to how James describes this. James 1, verses 13 and 15 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Desire breeds sin when unchecked by God's truth. It was, it was the desire that breathes Sin. It was the desire, it was the heart that built that golden calf. Israel is now freed by God's miraculous redemption through the Red Sea. Israel wants to go back in their heart. It is their passions and desires. What the Bible says, the lusts of the flesh, their passions that led them to the golden calf, it started in their heart. And this is where it comes back to us. Does that at all sound familiar? Do we at all struggle with passions and desires and lusts that are unchecked by God's word. We don't have to build a golden calf to commit idolatry. That's why I can't simply say here, here's five steps to avoid that. Here's how, just don't be like them. Just don't build, don't, don't have gold around, you know. Uh, just, just don't have fires, don't, don't have anything around. Just, you'll be okay. Right? Anytime we reject God as our creator and our savior, we are on a path to idolatry. Romans 1 is so, so key. I'm going to go back to just read that again. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged the truth about God. It was an exchange. The truth about God, they exchanged it for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator idolatry leads to worship and servitude in the wrong way right in the wrong way god is not against worship he is not against he's not against passions and desires he is the god of emotions and desires he's the god of passion god is passionate all throughout the bible he is he is the one who's created these things he is against our unchecked desires and passions that lead us to false worship and slavery. He's against that with all of his heart. He is jealous to make sure that we do not pursue unchecked passions and desires. And when I say unchecked, I mean that we don't look at our passions and desires and say, what does the word of God have to say about this? Right? That we check our emotions. What does the gospel have to say? What does Jesus have to say about what I am feeling right now? What I want so bad? What I'm so angry about uh, that I didn't get. What does Jesus have to say about those things? He is against, he's not against emotions, desires. He's not against disappointment. He is not against fear. He is against disappointment and fear that leads to worship of something other than himself. He wants all of those things to be directed to him. He wants your disappointment to be taken to him. He wants your fear to be taken to him because he's the only one who could possibly relieve you in those situations. Or he may not. He's the only one who could sustain you in that situation. Israel, the true, the true answer in Israel's case is to continue to trust God, even though it was hard and as difficult as it was. Their true answer was to simply trust God, not find solace in a false God, the golden calf, which led to all kinds of sin and gross things that happened in Exodus 32. Let me, let me give you something practical. The problem with this, right, the problem of idolatry, whether you know a lot about idols or this is the first time you've ever heard this word, idolatry, the problem is, is we, it's hard for us to uh, understand what it looks like. Here's some ways up on the screen to help us identify this. Number one, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. No created thing can give us true comfort and true peace. God alone is the only one who can give us those things. Number two, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. And then I'll feel significant and secure. I want to be sensitive to these things because we all have these feelings, right? We all struggle through this. We, we work through disappointment. We work through sadness. Our emotions are real, and God wants us to feel them. But if these are the things that we say, I have to have, they replace God. It's idolatry. It simply is a replacement and it leads to slavery because you can never truly be free of these because they can never truly live up to what they promise. Number three, anything that becomes more fundamental to God than God to your happiness, meaning, meaning in life, and identity. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning, and life, and identity. Anything you look to and say, I want that to define me. That's what's going to give me happiness. A marriage is going to give me happiness. Good grades will give me happiness. A a, a well-paying job, a certain amount of money in my bank account. That's when I know I can rest and say, oh, everything's okay. Whatever it may be, fill in the blank, right? Fill in the blank. Listen... Listen to how uh, a rapper describes idolatry. He does it so well. He has a song called Wings. It's Doug's favorite rapper, Macklemore. You gotta got to the, the Washington guys. Have, Doug's gonna come up here and rap. Uh, the Washington guys have to stick together. Listen, listen to what he says. Uh, the reason I, uh, he's a very talented wordsmith, and he listen to what he says. He's talking about shoes. <laughs> Uh, are you stupid? Don't crease them, just leave them in that box. Strangled by these laces, laces, I can barely talk. That's my air bubble and I'm lost if it pops. We are what we wear, we wear what we are. But I, but see, I look inside the mirror and think Phil Knight tricked us all. Will I stand for change or stay in my box? These Nikes help define me, but I'm trying to take mine off. They started out with what I wear to school that first day. Like these are what make you cool. This pair, this would be my parachute. So much more than just a pair of shoes. Now, this is what I am. What I wore, this is the source of my youth. This dream that they sold to you for $100 and some change. Consumption is in the veins. And now I see it's just another pair of shoes. He is so close to understanding what idolatry is. Are the shoes the issue? No, matter is good. God created all things and said, it is good. Material is fine. The golden calf, it wasn't the issue. Calves are fine. Gold is fine. Shoes are not bad. It is our hearts and passions and our desires to see them, as Macklemore says, parachutes. This is what's going to rescue me. That's what a parachute's for. They're sources of hope. This is what makes me cool. It's who I am, right? If you tie your identity to anything other than God, you will lose your identity and you will be consumed by that thing and you will morph yourself into that thing so that all you are are simply just what you wear other than being consumed by God so that what you are is what he is like. And you can give up things. And you can say, I may have a nice pair of shoes. I may not. It's okay. It's all right. Sneakerheads aren't the issue, right? It's what your heart attaches to them. Why is it so important to look at our sin this way? Why am I spending so much time getting at this? It's because we need to get to the root of our sin, which is idolatry or false worship. We all sin. We all fall short. We can't get stuck on what we see and repent merely on the surface level. God, help me to stop lying. Help me to stop being so angry. Help me to stop being so prideful. Help me to stop blessing. Behind all of those things is a heart that is worshiping and desiring and wanting something other than God. And so when those things are threatened, when your reputation is threatened, and somebody says something about you, you know it's not true, and you lash out, and you rip them. Why? Because that reputation is so important to you that you couldn't say, you know what? Who cares if it's not true about me? What's the big deal, right? I'm not saying don't defend yourself. I'm saying you can often see what's going in your hearts by the way if you just peel it back a little bit and go, why did I get so angry at that? Why am I being so defensive? Why do I want to lie about that? Why do I have to appear a certain way in front of a certain person? Why can't I just be comfortable with who God sees I am, as, as who God sees me as I am? Right. We gotta get, we gotta, we gotta take a step back. Right. We can't just say, oh, I don't have any golden calves. I'm good, Cameron. Let's go home. Right. We have to be able to say, what is at the heart of the issue? What is going on in my heart that makes me do that? When these surface issue, surface issues arise, and they will. They do in my life all the time. Look at what your heart is truly desiring and is willing to do to get it. Repent from that level and let that lead you to what you see. It's also important because these unchecked passions and false worship lead to slavery. Israel, Israel looked for freedom but became slaves again due to their false worship. They, went, they, you know, they truly did go back to Egypt in their hearts. They could not break free. Right? We, have to, we have to be able to make sure that we're not becoming slaves to things that, that promise what they can't deliver. Right? That's what worship, uh, uh, false worship does. It attaches to something and says, I will serve you. I'll do whatever I can to get it. What, is, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? I'll do it. We have to look out for our unchecked passions and our false worship because we will lead to slavery. It will be maybe six months later you go back, man, what, what have I doing the last six months? Oh, it's my heart. It's my desires. It's my passions. I got to go back and figure out what I want so badly so that I'm not enslaved. Psalm 423 tells us this, keep your heart with all vigilance. It means just be aware With all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For for from it flows the springs of life. Our hearts were created to worship God, to place all of our passions and all of our decisions and all of our wills and all of our joys under the rule of God. Keep your heart with all vigilance because from it flows the springs of life. So, how does God respond? What is God's response to this idolatry? What is God's response to being basically cast aside and, and the golden calf being created and worship ha, uh, happening uh, that's false and, and go, Israel going back from what they had promised? Let's read in uh, verses 11 through 14, and then I'll skip to 30 to 35. Moses implored the Lord God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? "...whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? This is Moses talking to God. He says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven." And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit forever. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Skip down to verse 30 to 35. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Moses makes this amazing plea. He doesn't ask God to flip-flop. He doesn't, he doesn't, it's not like, you know, when you go to mom and mom says no, and then you go to dad because you think dad's going to answer a different way, Right? He goes to God and, says, and simply appeals to his character. He simply says, God, I know you, you, you have every right to wipe out the people for their sin. You are a God of justice. If you were to look away, if any judge in all of the universe would say, oh, there's a gross sin happening there, I'm just gonna turn my back to it and not do anything about it. You would want that judge kicked out of court, right? All right? So God is a God of justice, and Moses knows that. And yet he says... He says, he appeals to his character. He says, you're a God of mercy. You're a God of the covenant. You promise to preserve this people and to give them a land and a blessing and that they would bless the nations through Abraham. And so God doesn't flip-flop. Moses simply appeals to his character and simply says, this is the God you are. Please, by your mercy, I know that the people don't deserve this, but please, don't, don't wipe them out. Don't wipe them out. Because you're a God of mercy. And he does. He says, okay, I'm not going to. And then Moses takes it a step further. In verses 30 to 35, he offers his life. He says, God, I know you have to punish sin. I know somebody has to die for this. I know we can't just, you can't just look away. That would make you unjust. And so Moses offers his life as an atonement. An atonement is a covering, right? So an atonement means that God is pleased because somebody else has covered the people's sin, he offers his life as an atonement, a substitute in their in their place. Moses knows that death has to happen. God cannot and will not ignore sin. He says, Moses says, blot me out of your book that you have written, as a plea for forgiveness for the people who have sinned. He says, I'll take I'll take their place. And after this appeal by Moses, many are actually still punished. And yet there are people, the Levites, according to Exodus 32, who because they repent, because they say. I'm, I'm not going to join in this party. I'm not going to join in this sin. I'm not going to join in what's going on. He spares them. He, the Levites declare their allegiance to the Lord, and that he is spared. Or the Levites are spared. But something is still missing. Something is still missing. Moses makes this great plea. He makes this great case for God to forgive. He says, I'll be the one who, who takes the punishment. And yet, Moses is never punished. Atonement never happens. How can the God of Israel forgive their sin of idolatry without a death that will atone or cover their sin? Who will be their substitute? Israel and everyone else who commits idolatry need something more than Moses. We need something more than someone miraculously and, and with great courage getting before the Lord to say, don't blot them out, take me instead. We need something more than begging God to take me instead. We need a better go-between. We need somebody who's going to advocate, somebody who will intercede. That's what a go-between is. They go between two parties to make peace. We need a better go-between that can truly atone and intercede for all of us. We need something more than Moses, and this is where Jesus enters the scene. Listen to, to how Jesus intercedes. Listen to how Jesus is the, the ultimate go between, the better go between, and the truest go between. He's the true interceder, He's the true advocate. Listen to Hebrews 7. It says, and it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly became priests, priests were the go betweens. They were the ones who represented the people to God and God to the people. And they made sacrifices so that God could be pleased. For those who formerly became priests were made without such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, they were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds, speaking of Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, or because, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' intercession is better and greater than Moses in at least two ways. Jesus' intercession is more than words. It's an office and a position. It is who he is. If you've ever met someone, you just go, man, you're so dedicated to a cause. It's just who you are. You're just the CEO of CEOs. You're just the professor of professors. You're just the the best of the best. Jesus is the interceders of the interceders. That's who he is. He's not just about words. That's what he does and who he is. He's the only one who can truly intercede He is the perfect and final priest, according to Hebrews, who offers pleasing sacrifice so that God's anger towards the people's sins can be satisfied. His death on the cross provided atonement for the sins of all who would trust Jesus. He is the better interceder. He is the only go-between God and man that we have. He is the only one who could atone by his perfect life and perfect death. God needed somebody, demanded Perfect substitution, perfect atonement. If somebody was going to be covered, if God's justice was going to be satisfied, it had to be a perfect atonement. And Jesus, through his life, his sinless life, his perfect death, took on ourself, took on himself the the, punish, the punishment that, he does, that we deserved. He offers more than a plea. This is more than begging. He did the work. He lived the life that you could not live. He died the death that you could not die so that he could cover your idolatry. Amen. He did the work. He's not about words. He did the work. Moses is amazing, but he cannot touch what Jesus has done. He did the work to cover your idolatry. He said, I will step in between, and he did it by love. Secondly, the reason why he's a greater interceder is this. His intercession is forever. Hebrews 7.25. The writer of Hebrews is making this case about how he lives forever. He's the final priest. Priests died, they left, and Jesus is the only one who will continue forever. And he says, consequently, or because his work is forever, he is able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost just is a, Bible way of saying completely and freely. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Complete and final salvation. Save to the uttermost. Why or how since he always lives to make intercession for them. Moses died. Your idols, your go-betweens, your advocates, your things that you want to make you whole and to bring forgiveness and to and to ease the stress and to give you some peace they will pass when your heart commits idolatry time and time again there isn't a word that needs to be said there's no idol coming of yours coming to save you there is only Jesus by his very presence Jesus is the slain lamb standing in your place. He was raised on the third day. He's seated at the right hand, and he is forever interceding for you. Let me get this, like, really, really clear. Forever means forever. It's not when you're having a good day or a bad day. It's not when you have a bad month or a good month. Forever, he is interceding for you. Forever, he is, he is the one who can cover your sin because he always lives to make intercession for you. That's what the Bible says, not what I say. That's Hebrews seven. No one or nothing is changing this reality. Jesus forever intercedes for you because he is forever an interceder. He's forever a priest. He's forever the one who atones and it satisfies God's anger and justice. He's forever the one who lived a life perfectly so that God is, can look at us and say, even though we, we mess up every day, your, your sin's covered. Even though you, you worship false things, your sin's covered. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than any idol your heart can muster. We can be ruled by this love. We don't have to be ruled by our unchecked emotions or desires and passions we can be ruled by this love that is described all throughout the scripture. It is Jesus' love that compels us to say no to idolatry and say yes to him. It is love. Listen to how John Owen describes this. John Owen is a genius. He writes in a way that's hard to understand. I'm gonna try my best. In one of his books, he said, if you're a casual reader, I bid you adieu. And said, after page one, basically, if you're not serious, bye bye I would never say that. But, uh, but he did. Uh, he loved Jesus, and he, he was great at explaining the book of Hebrews. He says, but how should we know that the Lord Christ is thus tender and compassionate, and that he continues to be this way? What's the evidence? What's the testimony that we, that we have of it? It is true that when he was on the earth in the days of his flesh, when he lived and when he laid down his life for us, we know that he loved us. But now we have an infallible, without fail, demonstration of it. That he continues in the exercise of that office of interceder with respect to all these affections of love, pity, and compassion. They're all still true of him. As our high priest, he's able to suffer, he's able to console with, he's able to have compassion on his poor tempted ones, as Hebrews 4.15 says. All of these affections, he continually acts and exercises in his intercession. From a sense, it is of our wants, our lacks, our weaknesses, our distresses, our temptations, All these things are true of us, and yet with him are accompanied inexpressible love and compassion, and he continually intercedes for them. He does so that their sins may be pardoned, their temptations subdued, their sorrows removed, their trials sanctified, their persons saved, and doing this continually as a high priest. He is in the continual exercise of love, care, pity, and compassion. We root out idols by constantly coming back to Jesus. If he loves us this much, how can we ever respond with anything other than worship, praise, and service? The book of 1 John ends with a simple sentence. Beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. They don't mention anything to do with idolatry in all of 1 John, and yet he ends on that because it is so serious to John. How do we do that? we root it out at the heart level. We we check our passions and their desires under the word of God and say, "Why am I so worked up about this? Is this an unnatural passion? Is this an unchecked passion? Is this something that I have made an idol?" And then we bring those things to Jesus. And we don't say necessarily, "Here's, he's going to relieve all your fear and all of your, you know, all of these things that you need." He may But you come to him, and you see how much he loves you, and you say, how can I want anything else as bad? How can I want anything else? I I have Jesus. I have the one who loves me this well, and he's continually forever doing this. Forever. That's who he is. And so go to him when you have those issues. Be ruled by his love And you'll see that the the idols, you'll be able to keep yourself from idols. They will fade away. It'll be hard. It'll be work. It'll take this community. It'll take brothers and sisters helping you. You will fail. I fail all the time. But it is what we're called to do, and God will help us to do it. Let's pray that he will. Jesus, help us to keep ourselves from idols. Help us to not be slaves. Help us to take all of our passions, all our desires, and bring them under you. Help us to take our disappointments, our our sadness, our fears, Lord, and and not to hide from them and not to put them under the rug or or just to simply feel them, Lord, but to bring them under you and say, what's going on? What what does my heart want? What is, why, why, why is this happening? Help us to include our brothers and sisters in this. Help us to be patient with one another, to bear with one another, and help us ultimately to look to Jesus, the one who will carry us through all of our disappointments, all of our sadness, all of our fears, everything that comes through our life, because he continually intercedes for us as his high priest. Help us to believe that, to bank on that, and to live like that's true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.